guys! Welcome back to season two of Control All Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. In today's episode, I'm super happy to have Nathan join us. Nathan is a decorated musician and plays the cello for the Seattle Symphony. He started his musical debut at the young age of three, where he conducted the San Jose Chamber Orchestra. Isn't that amazing? He then went on to play at the Carnegie Hall at the young age of 12, and has since been featured in HBO documentaries. Aside from playing at the Seattle Symphony as his full-time job now, he also has a very popular YouTube channel on the side, with over 6 million views. In his YouTube channel, he mostly does pop renditions with a classical twist, so definitely go check it out later on. Alright, well thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Nathan. It's super exciting to have you here. My first question for you is, starting all the way from the very beginning, how did you get started in music? And how did you manage to conduct an orchestra at the age of three? Sure. Oh, well, my beginnings in in music kind of started very curiously and strangely. I have to credit my parents in a big way because our house was always surrounded by music. My father had a large collection of recordings of famous orchestras, such as the Boston Symphony with Seiji Ozawa, a fabulous Japanese conductor, the Berlin Philharmonic with Herbert von Karajan, and of course the New York Philharmonic with the great uh, conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein, who composed West Side Story. So basically, growing up, I had a lot of these influences around me uh, to absorb and listen to. And I think growing up watching these folks on this big screen TV, they became kind of my heroes. Seeing their physicality, the way they controlled sound with the way they moved their body uh, was something very fascinating to me. And so even just as a, a two or three year old, I think there was something really interesting about observing the connection between physical movement and sound. And because of that, I was extremely drawn to it, so much so that I would go over to the kitchen and get a chopstick and go back to the TV and conduct alongside those conductors on the TV. It wasn't until I was basically sitting in a concert that my parents had taken me to, and I was sort of conducting along in my seat, that the then assistant conductor of the San Francisco Opera. Her name is Sarah Jobin. She saw a little boy sitting in the seats in front of her and she said, "Mm, that's not normal. So she actually introduced herself to my parents and sort of became my conducting mentor. And it was a great way to formalize whatever I was doing naturally into something more concrete. And She actually helped uh, get me that first performance at the age of three with the San Jose Chamber Orchestra. That is such a cool story. So basically, you were just sitting in your chair in this concert, kind of just like waving around, being the conductor. And then she was like, oh, that's so cool. That's so cute. That little kid over there was like so into it. And she's like, you know what? Do you want to come on stage like at some point in the future to, to conduct? Exactly, exactly. It was very serendipitous. But I'm so fortunate for that experience and that that chance encounter. That's that's super cool. And I guess so this music, it sounds like it really came from your parents as well. So your parents were always really into classical music? 
Yes, they were. My mother is a professional pianist. She actually went to Juilliard for school. She is a concert pianist and she teaches. My father, on the other hand, his profession is a cardiologist, but he always grew up loving and playing music. He, I think that certainly had a huge influence on my upbringing, the fact that my parents both were so knowledgeable and loved classical music so much. And, you know, it's always the question of nature versus nurture, but certainly there was lots of music around in my household. So I know that you're a, a cellist now. When did you start playing the cello? And were there other instruments that you started off with or tried? So basically after that first conducting experience at age three, my parents had this idea where they said, you know, we want to see if we can formalize this type of musical intuition into an actual instrument. After watching many of these videos, I was really fascinated with the low sounds of an orchestra. I loved the largeness of actually a double bass, in fact. There's a moment in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony where there's a large double bass section, and I remember very distinctly that image and that sound in my brain when I was very young as being something very fascinating. And so I had repeatedly asked my parents that I wanted to play the double bass, but they were like, oh, maybe he doesn't really know what he wants. So they actually took me to a violin masterclass once. And immediately upon entering the violin masterclass, I told my mom, this, is, this isn't a double bass. This isn't, this isn't what I want. So I think in some way, I kind of did have a, a feeling of what I liked and what I didn't like in terms of sound. The reason why I chose the cello ultimately was because my parents thought the double bass was too big. I was a very small child and I still am a relatively small human. And so they thought playing a double bass would be a little bit too impractical. So we took it down a notch and we settled on the cello. And so at age five, I started my formal lessons on the cello. That's super interesting that you already had such a strong sense of what you liked and didn't like in terms of like sound, you know, as, as a young child, I think usually it's like, oh, your parents say, oh, you should play the piano. So you like play the piano. So I think it's very interesting that you actually were very drawn to like a particular sound already. Okay. So you, you know, started picking up the cello at five. I'm actually just imagining a very small <laughs> child playing such a large instrument. I know it's that they're like funny. baby cellos, but still like that, that's actually pretty adorable to see like a little kid carrying this like massive, <laughs> massive instrument around. I guess, how did it develop over time? Because you've had mm -hmm. such an impressive musical career, even at such a young age, right? Mm -hmm. You were playing at concert halls, the, the Carnegie Hall when you were a teenager, which is pretty amazing. So, you know, how did you get from starting playing the cello at five all the way to, you know, maybe like in less than 10 years, getting to this very professional level? Well, with all good things, it takes a lot of practice. I think little baby steps one at a time to be very specific in terms of my strengths and weaknesses as a musician, I've always felt musicality is something that comes very naturally. What I mean by that is sort of the emotional aspect of music, the humanistic side of trying to make things carry a sort of human connection. And so that always came very naturally to me. The part that was much more difficult and I think is something I'm still working on to this day is the technical side of music making the physicality, the coordination, 
the accuracy, the precision that's required to master any craft. But I feel very fortunate that throughout that journey in improving technique, there's always a musical understanding behind it. And so I think that always is a very important lesson whenever we're trying to improve any craft is the reasoning why we're doing something. And for me, I felt very strongly about that. So I think because of that, my progression, you know, perhaps was easier than others. And I guess as a child, usually there are like moments where you're really interested in something and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this other shiny thing, like I want to go try that. Did that ever happen in your life where you're like, oh, music, I'm over it. Like, I just don't want to do it anymore. Oh, definitely. I think the the most famous moments when, you know, the blood, sweat and tears of improving any craft, those moments where you want to give up. I, I told my parents, I can't do this anymore. This is way too hard. And my mom always told me a, a very interesting phrase. She said, you can quit when you're 18. Then after 18, if you want to quit, go ahead. I can't force you to. But sure enough, by the time I was 18, uh, you know, I, I kept playing because, I, you know, I was at a certain point in my life where it was too, it was impossible to quit. So in that respect, that was very smart of her. She tricked me, but it, I'm thankful that I stuck with it. I think the, the lesson behind that phrase is, you know, if you quit whenever there's some sort of resistance in life, then you're never really going to see things through to the end and you'll never really discover your full potential. So I think in that respect, even at that young age, my parents had a very good mindset in in teaching me to be resilient and to be in that respect, stubborn. Don't give up so easily. See things through those first couple of hurdles before you give up. So it sounds like it was like a combination of you just being very passionate and interested in playing the cello and also mm-hmm. your parents kind of helping you through the the tough times, you know, moments when you were like, oh, I, I just can't do this anymore. Having your parents there to kind of push you through was really what led you into such a, I guess, early success in your musical career. And so maybe just contextualize this a little bit, like how much mm-hmm. were you actually playing per day to get to that level mm-hmm. of expertise or, or mastery? It's hard to quantify exactly because, you know, some days I would practice more and some days I would practice less. But certainly I was practicing, you know, at least hopefully (laughs) two to three hours a day, I would say. Wow. And do you feel like that sort of dedication was just like innate, like it's like a personality trait that you had to be able to kind of like do two to three hours a day and sit still and kind of go through the chords and the more boring side of the training? Actually, I would say that part did not come very naturally for me because for the fact that I had this ability to learn things very quickly, it made it very easy for me to kind of do things 90% of the way. But of course, in order to be a great musician, you have to take things to 110%. And so getting that last 10% and having the discipline to stay was very, very difficult for me. I don't think it came naturally. I think that certainly had to be trained into me. And I think I only had a greater appreciation for that last 10% of learning only after I acquired the skills in which to improve myself from more of a self-learning standpoint. A lot of the times my parents had to be like, come on, stay and practice a little longer. (laughs) I think getting any person to not only uh, respect that 
part of the learning process, but also, you know, even if they don't naturally like it, to still give it a good effort is a thing that I maybe when I have kids someday, I'm not exactly sure I'm, how I'm going to teach them, but I'm going to be pretty sure that that's a core value. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly worked out very well in in your life. So, <laughs> a good oh, thing to instill <laughs> into the next generation as well. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess you you know started playing the cello. You were pretty good at it. How did mm. you get to play on such large stages at such an early age? Was it mostly like you competing in competitions, and then people oh. sort of recognizing your skills, and then mm. inviting you to perform at these stages? Or did you guys actively like? Did you and your parents actively say, "Okay, actually, like this would be a super cool opportunity to you know play at the Carnegie Hall. Um, let's go and see if we can find an opportunity there for Nathan." Um, I, although I've competed in some competitions in my life, I would say I cannot really attribute a majority of my career success to that type of pursuit. And I think this is very much in line with. The kind of person that I am, I don't really like the competitive nature of competitions. I much prefer the collaborative nature of music, where I get to work with others, make other people feel great, and in turn, you know, you feel great when you help other people. The very first time I experienced this divergence from competition-type mindset versus a collaborative one is when I had an opportunity. To be a part of an HBO documentary called "The Music in Me," my cello teacher at the time told me about it in passing, and she was like, "Oh, this might be kind of interesting for you to apply to." And it was a very interesting process in order to get onto the show because the application process was for one to send in a video of you performing something, but also talking a little bit about your life story and. How music has affected you and what your goals are, and I think that's really what probably set me apart in that instance, uh, because um, you know, kind of going back on the point where I feel I'm more musically driven than technically driven. Sometimes in competitions, uh, what one is looking for is that technical aspect, and sometimes that musical aspect is lost a little bit. And um, I guess the beauty of This HBO show is—it was a different kind of competition where the story of one's personality and childhood was much more important than the technical ability of one's playing per se. And so I think that really cemented a different kind of mindset when I had the privilege to be on that show and sort of talking about music and saying why it's important to me. That's the kind of musician that I prefer to be—one where I'm sharing the love of music versus trying to prove something. And I think also making that video sort of began a interesting cycle and pursuit into the world of social media and and video editing and audio editing and things like that, which I'm so passionate about now. And so it's interesting how a little event like that in one's childhood can ultimately shape 
your future. So at that point in time, you've already lived pretty successful, like in your teenage years as a musician. Some might even call you like a musical prodigy to be this level, oh, this successful, <laughs> this early on. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you think, okay, at this point in time, were you like, I'm going to become a professional musician? Or were you still exploring different things? So definitely not at all did I feel at that stage that I wanted to be a professional musician. In fact, I would describe my cello pursuits as more like a hobby, something I did on the side. And that was mainly because my parents and I placed a lot of importance on academics. It wouldn't be good if I was just a cellist and I was flunking in school. And so I think because I needed to dedicate so much energy to those other pursuits, it was always sort of this strange balancing game growing up of trying to be very successful in school. And whenever there was a, a musical opportunity, I often had to tell my teachers, you know, I have this thing. I got to turn in my homework early. I got to find some sort of a makeup exam if I had to miss something. A lot of other young musicians at that stage in the game, because of that difficulty in balancing both academics and music, they end up choosing to go towards a homeschool path and they end up uh, you know being taught at home in order to dedicate more time to music but i think my parents made a very concerted effort not to do that and i'm so thankful that they didn't i've met lots of successful homeschool musicians but um, at the same time i think that wouldn't have been the right choice for me because ultimately it helped lead me to a path where i ended up going to you know columbia juilliard exchange program and it wasn't until then where i sort of decided, okay, I think I'd like to be a professional musician at that stage in the game. What I appreciate about that is I think it let me make that decision on my terms versus my parents' terms. Yeah. And I think for like from a mindset perspective, what do you think are key things that differentiates your mindset from other people that has gotten you the success that you have today? I definitely feel that the necessity to be self-motivated is certainly something that I didn't have at first, but when I finally felt in my life that I needed to be in order to pursue this profession, then I really adopted it and really made it my own. I guess the cliche saying is like, you have to be blinded by passion because it's too easy, especially when you're going off to do your own thing. If you hear any type of negativity or doubt it's very easy to second guess yourself. But to have the conviction to say, I hear you, but I think you're wrong. That's very difficult to instill. But I think it's probably my strongest trait and it's definitely helped in my success. I think it's easy to say that, but it's also how does one develop that? My recommendation would be to do project-oriented and goal-oriented life where you make things yourself and you self-evaluate after you do those things to see what kind of impact it had on your community, how it made you feel, if it gave you more confidence or less confidence in what you are doing. I think having multiple iterations of those types of events will definitely boost your self-confidence. And that's kind of what helped me develop that. So it's like the self-reflection and kind of noting it down, that was really what helped give you the confidence because you could kind of refer back when you had moments of doubts. 
Yes. I think that's really good, actionable feedback. Yes, actionable. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Nathan. (laughs) Okay, so you said growing up, Mm -hmm. not just on music, but also on academics. Before I actually go into the college life, how did you actually balance the two when you were younger? I think really understanding one's priorities in life is quite important. And for me, my biggest piece of advice whenever it feels like one's plate is full is to take things one at a time based on how soon deadlines are. So if I have a week where I have five things to do, it's very hard for me to multitask. I'm not a very good multitasker. I'll do whatever comes up first and focus my entirety of my energies to it until it's completed. And then that allows my brain the capacity to focus on the next thing and so on and so forth. That was certainly uh, a big strategy that I used whenever I had things that seemed to overwhelm my schedule. And then similarly, if even that doesn't work, sometimes you just have to say, you know, I can't give this certain thing 100% of my effort or else I'm going to (laughs) die. And realizing that because you need to invest your efforts into something else that's more important and will give more dividends in the long term. I think that's also something that's quite challenging for a lot of people, right? It sometimes feels like when you give up something, that decision is so final. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people, you know, who maybe struggle with like decision making, do you have mm-hmm. any ways or frameworks that you use that could be potentially helpful for them? I think a lot about opportunity cost. Certainly the, the decision to go 200% into music. One thing I thought about for sure was if I want to be the world's greatest cellist, is that going to happen in my 20s and 30s? Or is it going to happen after I have a finance job and I'm in my 50s and 60s? I don't think so. I think stages of life are certainly a big aspect to think about in one's development do certain opportunities present themselves later in life or are they once in a lifetime opportunities that can only happen now another aspect especially this pertains a lot is sometimes we have to think about the the financial aspect of things is it better to have more money or is it better to have more happiness that's always a personal call but one thing that i thought about is instead of thinking about how I benefit, it's more about how others benefit. Is the world gonna be better with me as a musician or me as something else? Playing concerts, talking to people afterwards, seeing how happy they are, I feel that makes people around me better. And so that's a more positive thing for me than any sort of self gain that I could have in other pursuits. So I guess those are my two tips. Stages of life are opportunities now, never, or sometimes later. And if you're having trouble thinking about what's best for me, think about what's best for others. And I guess this is probably how you decided what to do after uh, you graduated from college, right? But before we go there, I wanted to ask you, when you were applying for colleges, Mm -hmm. was there a reason you did both Columbia and Juilliard as opposed to just going to Juilliard? I think it stemmed from that aspect of academics being so important in my life. And I was kind of distracted and interested in lots of things 
I wasn't singularly interested in music. And I know a lot of people at that stage in life are. I didn't feel that way. I was very interested in business and, and you know, societal matters. I was too distracted to go all in at that stage in life. And it wasn't until I was in college that I started singularly investing. I think that's also a privileged American education system that a lot of times Asian education systems does not afford. And so I understand that not everybody has that luxury. So, okay, so when you were graduating, were you like, okay, I'm definitely going to pursue the musician route? Yes, probably around my second or third year of college, I realized that I was going to be able to make the greatest impact on the people around me through music. And I wouldn't be able to do that same thing with my economics degree. I found more joy in music making. And ultimately, I just found more success, I think, as a musician. And so once you start getting that feedback loop of what you feel confident in, then it's that mindset shift where you're like, okay, now it's time to really buckle down and give this thing a 200% try. And when you were applying to jobs Mm -hmm. then, were you always interested in like symphony type of roles or were there other roles within music that you were considering? That's a very good question. I think when I started my master's degree at Juilliard, one of the big factors in going for symphony jobs was the fact that I really didn't want to go back to school after (laughs) master's. And for me, I really wanted to just get a start in life right away. And so symphony was sort of the most straightforward pursuit in terms of getting started as a a professional musician. And that was a discussion that I had with my teacher and I wasn't 100% on board at it right from the get-go. It was something I sort of developed a little bit over time. And I think being a, a symphony musician has enabled me to ultimately do a lot of the other things that I'm really interested in, such as social media, Yeah, so I do want to get into that social media Mm -hmm. piece. I know that you actually have a very strong YouTube presence. I was reading you have over 6 million views on your YouTube videos, which is amazing. Amazing, (laughs) Nathan. But actually what you do is super cool. And I'll definitely insert a clip in here so that you guys can listen to what Nathan does. Would you call them like pop renditions using your cello? over i call them covers with a twist covers with a twist yeah (laughs) they're super cool like i think what you've been doing with your social media is just how to make classical music relevant for our generation and even for the the younger generation because i think a lot of us now see classical music as something that's maybe a bit like old-fashioned or a bit less approachable like it's kind of rare to hear like young people get so excited about classical music so i guess for you Was that the impetus to starting this YouTube channel? The YouTube channel started out very interestingly. It was, 
actually just a way for me to upload old archival footage of performances that I had performed. But it wasn't until I was in youth orchestra in San Francisco and I had a wonderful friend named Alex Fager. And I heard him play the Super Mario Brothers theme on violin and I thought that was so cool. And I asked him if he wanted to collaborate and we ended up producing a video specifically with the Super Mario Brothers theme song. And that really flipped a switch where YouTube's power is when you create specific pieces of art for the medium instead of just uploading whatever you have around. If you create something for it and combine it with some beautiful imagery and something uh, a little unique, then it takes music into a totally different perspective. And I think to circle back on those first moments of me as a two or three year old watching someone else perform music on TV, I, I see a, a huge connection uh, between those two. What brought me into music through what I guess was visual. A conductor is a very much a visual sort of thing. It's something I enjoy creating for others, making music videos. Is this something that you are doing on your free time? Or like, oh, I must create one now or like at a certain schedule? Well, that's a great question. I find my creativity comes in spurts sometimes. And so I have moments where I feel, oh, I don't really feel like creating anything. But then there are moments where like, oh, I have all these ideas and I want to create all these videos. Lately, I've been trying to invest more time and really thinking of my social media more as a really powerful platform that I need to leverage more in order to really take what I represent and bring it to the next level. So that's actually one of the big things I've been thinking about during COVID. I created my first social media kit and I've been approaching brands about sponsored content and I successfully landed my first brand deal. Oh my God, so amazing. Stay tuned. It's a Chinese oh, tech wow. company. So I'm very excited about that. I think, you know, lots of companies are starting to realize the power of social media more and more. The power of niche marketing with all their creators having sort of cultivating wonderful communities based on their personalities and talents. The big thing I'm really in love with is TikTok right now. So <laughs> that's sort of been on my mind a lot. That's super cool. And how do you think you really grew your audience? What do you think was the thing that really spoke out to people that then they started following you and I guess almost going viral, I would say, with your videos? <laughs> well, I've always felt that the most important thing um, whenever one creates content for social media is to be extremely genuine. Okay. The moment you start to create content for followers or for views, I feel is the moment your content kind of loses its charm a, a little bit. I feel like I have a good intuition on when something is genuine and, and something isn't. And so I try and stay as true to that as possible. So what you see on my social media is very much who I am. And I think that notion of listening to my creative voice on when I think an idea is great has certainly served me well. If I put something out, I wanna make sure I'm really proud of it. Okay, well, shifting gears a little bit to just talk about life now with COVID and how has that really impacted you? I know that you guys aren't doing as many performances anymore. Are you guys doing online performances maybe? So the Seattle Symphony um, 
since the beginning of our 2020 and 2021 season, we've shifted to a live streaming uh, format where we rehearse from Tuesday to Thursday and we stream live a concert on Thursday night. It's certainly a different sort of experience than one that we're used to, but we're very thankful that we can still make music in this time when uh, you know, a lot of other folks and organizations aren't able to, and we're trying to be very respectful of that. At the same time, I think it calls for a double-edged sword where, of course, the symphony, we're doing these concerts as much as we can, but also I feel there's a newfound responsibility for me as an individual to continue representing our symphony and our music and doing things on my own through social media. And so I've been doing a lot of projects with friends and creating content on my own in conjunction with what we're doing with the symphony. So it seems like your life now is much more online oriented, like even oh, on, yeah. <laughs> even outside of the symphony, like the projects you're working on are also around like content creation online and yeah. building up your social media and connecting with your audience through that. Certainly. Uh, something interesting that I recently did with a friend, Michael Casimir, who's a wonderful violist from the St. Louis Symphony, is we are creating this new type of concert format where, you know, instead of just listening to a Zoom concert, what we actually did was we really professionally produced a concert in which we were using green screens. And so we've edited the video such that it looks like we're, we're right there together uh, as if we're in the same hall and stage. I think it's a unique and fresh take on the concert going experience that's a little bit different than just watching people play in a box. That's amazing. Actually, how does Zoom concerts work? Because mm. aren't there any, like, aren't there lags and stuff? Yeah, precisely. So how, so how it, do you, yeah. It makes it virtually impossible for two <laughs> yeah. musicians to play together at the same time. So yeah. <laughs> we came up with this amazing uh, thing where basically what we'll do is we'll pre-record the audio together. I, I make a musical click track and oftentimes when you're trying to play together you play with a metronome but a metronome isn't able to capture the nuance of organic music making so I make a click track that you know goes faster and slower and is very musical and then we'll combine the audio and I'll edit it together so it really sounds beautiful and perfect and then we'll play the video along that in front of a green screen and then my friend Michael's role is to combine the images together and you know we're interacting with each other and so then it really looks like we're playing exactly in time with each other and so that's sort of our strategy that's super cool but now that you've kind of you know explored this technology as like one mm -hmm. of the mediums or channels mm -hmm. for your music what do you think is next for you do you still see yourself being at the symphony i know that people tend to stay on these types of roles for a really long time but for yourself like are there other things that you're thinking about doing i think COVID has been a great reminder that one needs to constantly innovate oneself no matter the times and certainly COVID has accelerated a lot of my thinking in terms of the combination of arts and science and technology and what's possible I've always been curious about it. I intend to continue to pursue these two mediums and the way they combine together. I ultimately envision a type of career where I meld technology and, and music together in unique and innovative ways that I think are, are special and hopefully bring interesting experiences to people. I've 
always felt classical music has needed to innovate more and I would love to be the champion for that innovation. Yeah, I think very ripe for disruption <laughs> in, yes. in that space. And I mean, clearly it's resonated great with your videos where you're using a classical music medium to play very popular trendy songs. Like clearly that oh, is already resonating <laughs> with your audience very well. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in that space for you for you to explore. And just kind of shifting towards something a bit more personal, um, mm. I wanted to speak a little bit about financials because yes. it's one of the topics that a lot of people who are thinking about pursuing an alternative career, that's usually the biggest hurdle that people need to get through. A, lo a lot of people think that like musicians don't make a lot of money until you are at like the top percentile. Do you think that that statement is true? If we were to just look at the data, I would say yes, it's true. But now there are many more innovative ways in which people are creating a career for themselves in music with technology, with remote recording, through the education of it. So I guess from a macro perspective, yes, there's great inequality in terms of the financial viability of the career, but I think the inequality is decreasing and there's a big shift making it more possible. Um, the other question with regards to financials is, you know, in I think we've also touched upon this quite a few times in this interview mm. already, but in the Western world, it's a lot of like, hey, you know, follow your dreams, follow your passion, and eventually the money mm -hmm. will come. Whereas mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. you grew up with the more Asian upbringing, it's much more like, okay, you follow the path with the financial security, and then you spend your free time on things that you love. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, given that you are Asian American, so you've got kind of one foot in each door, <laughs> per sure. se. What, what are your thoughts on this, the passion versus financial security? That's a wonderful question. Well, I guess I should preface this by saying, you know, I'm realistic in some senses, you know, I like money too. And so I always made it a goal that if I were to do this, I would be, I would be properly compensated. Um, that's a very difficult question and it's a very personal question to each individual. I feel if you want to take the more passionate route and be financially comfortable. I think one needs to be extremely disciplined in one's finances. And then at the same time, you probably would have to ask yourself, what's your limit? How much risk are you willing to take on before perhaps it's the market telling you that maybe this is not right for you? It's a very terrible thing. <laughs> When I said it out of my mouth, it sounded horrible. I guess it's a, it's a question of what's your risk tolerance. I don't think one should completely close off the idea of living life without a little bit of risk, especially if the returns can be great. Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing it. And it's, it's interesting because this is actually one of those questions that I ask all of my guests who come on to my show. So it's very interesting to hear how different people answer this question. For a lot of my guests who left their corporate job to pursue something different, for them, the answer is always 
quite clear it's follow your dreams that money doesn't buy happiness because they had experienced what it was like to work in like a job where they made good money but they weren't very satisfied or fulfilled but for people who have managed to pursue their passion and their dreams it's just saying to hear that it's not such a clear-cut straightforward type of answer and that there is a balance and so i actually wanted to ask you if you actually were not as good a cellist as you are you know if you were kind of a mediocre cellist, for example, mm. do you think you would still feel so comfortable pursuing this alternative career? Or do you think that if you weren't as amazing as you are today, you would maybe consider more seriously pursuing a corporate job? You know, I've always felt that while my pursuits in cello are unique, they're backed by a certain guiding principles of, you know, a love for creativity and a passion for making people around me feel great. And if I weren't a cellist, I would still be able to find something like that in a different industry that still aligned with my principles and still made me happy. I guess I can't really explain what that would be like because it's never happened, but I would hope that I would still treat whatever I'd did with the same type of care and, you know, effort that I do with cello right now. But at the same time, there's there's more to life than just cello. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess, I think maybe to answer your question is, it's important to be flexible in life. I guess, like, were there other career paths you were ever considering? I always loved technology, perhaps some sort of business tech game theory would have been interesting, but uh, at the same time, that concept of plan B, while important, I almost purposefully didn't think about it too much in order to put the pressure on me to work even harder as a musician. If you have a plan B and you consider it too deeply while you're trying to do something crazy like being a musician just to compare it with uh, winning a symphony job I've never met somebody who won a symphony job who went a little bit crazy about how they prepared for it you have to be like a little bit not right you can't be logical if that makes sense Interesting. Like you have to want it so, so, so badly that the there was fire. no other, yeah, no other thing that you would ever consider in your life. And that's exactly. how you, you would get it. That's so maybe steeply subconsciously I had a plan B, but at the same time, I don't know if I did. And actually just backtracking, I know this is like a side thought, but just one thing I wanted to ask you, when you told your parents you wanted to be a professional musician, what did they say? Were they pretty supportive or were they like, oh, wait, wait, what? That's a great question. Perhaps the word would be cautious optimism. They're like, okay, but are you sure you don't want to try getting an internship at Google <laughs> this summer? <laughs> they said that to me once. I was going to go to a summer music festival and I had to say, nope, I'm going to do this festival. That doesn't really answer your question, but that's sort of the mindset they had. And I think then that goes back to your point about how you just have to have that self-confidence in where you want your life to be going. 
that there will always be people who kind of come in and suggest other things that could be a very viable professional career for you as well. But, you know, mm -hmm. you just have to know what it is that you want and kind of stick to your guns. Yes, definitely. Cool. And so just to close off the conversation today, any last piece of advice that you would want to give to people who are maybe thinking about pursuing a career in music, what advice would you give them or what do you wish you knew before you embarked on this journey? Make sure when you take that leap of faith that you know that in the darkest and deepest of disparities, you're going to always have a guiding light that will get you out of bed and get you to do the thing that you chose to do. And test yourself every once in a while if that fire is there when you're thinking about making that decision. Because for me, that fire is what is what has kept me going. The fire being like your passion in music. Mm -hmm. the, the craziness, the absurdity that I chose this and I love it. <laughs> I think that's really good advice because there will always be tough times that come along. And I'm sure in this industry, especially, it's even more challenging to make it, you know, because you really got to be in the top to, to kind of make it in this industry. You can't just kind of be mediocre and still make good money from it. Is there anything else you would like to share before we close off that I didn't get a chance to ask you today? Take advantage of your health insurance before you leave your corporate job. <laughs> <laughs> health insurance is expensive, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. No, just enjoy life. Life is temporary. Do the thing that's going to make it so that when you die, you say, I have no regrets. Yeah, and I think that that's honestly the, a perfect way to summarize and wrap up to today's conversation um so thank you nathan so much for your time today i know we spoke for quite a bit of time so really appreciate everything you've shared and all the things that you did to get you through the tough times and get you the success that you've seen all that advice thank you for sharing those with us today and there you have it my conversation with nathan Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, the importance of discipline and grit to achieving success. I don't think this is anything new, but what I think was interesting to hear is how Nathan credits his perseverance to passion and having accountability partners like his parents to push him through those rough times when he just really wanted to give up. Two, one framework that Nathan used to decide whether or not to be a professional musician was measuring his impact on the world. For him, he thought that he could contribute more to the world with him as a musician rather than with him in finance or in technology. Three, what I found fascinating about Nathan's mindset is his unwavering belief and clarity in what it is that he wants. Even at a young age, he knew that he wanted to play the cello and not the violin. And this strong clarity was what helped him say no to a lot of other things in life that could have been viable alternative paths like an internship at Google, but this would have distracted him from his musical career. Personally, this is definitely something that I struggle with, and religiously saying no to other viable alternatives is something I'm trying to implement more in my life. Four, it's amazing to know that Nathan didn't have a plan B when he was applying for symphony jobs. Symphony jobs are notoriously difficult to get, and he said that he didn't have a plan B to motivate himself to work even harder, 
It's almost like knowing that he could fail was what made him succeed. As someone who is quite risk averse, I find this mentality fascinating. What do you guys think? And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks from now for our next episode, where I'll be interviewing the founders of Sunday Betting and hear how they built a betting company in Singapore. And if you liked this episode, I would love it if you shared with two of your friends and tag me on social media so I know you're listening to it. Thanks so much for tuning in as always. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. <laughs>